I was reading a, a story as we get into our text this morning, and there's some debate whether the story is a legend or whether it's based in truth, but it's a great story nonetheless. So with that caveat, on October 11th, 1775, explorers down in the Arctic region discovered a vessel that was adrift among icebergs, among the frozen wasteland there, and and they boarded the vessel and they found the crew was still on the vessel. They went to the, the captain's quarters and the captain is still sitting at his desk, frozen, because it's in the Arctic. The crew, some were in their cots, some were on deck, and they were frozen. As they looked at the dates, they found that this vessel had been adrift for 13 years in the, amongst the iceberg and the ice up in the Arctic. The author said it's a drifting sepulcher manned by a frozen crew. And it's, a, it's an interesting story to start our discussion today because sometimes, if we're not careful, that can become a picture of the church or that can become a picture of our spiritual lives. Sometimes as we, we go through life and we're doing our job and we're doing our work, we find our heart growing cold. We find our, our spiritual walk growing cold. Sometimes we described it, uh, describe it as a dry time. Anyone ever have a dry time in your walk with God? Absolutely. It's something that we struggle with. It's something that we fight through. But we don't want to end up like that ship. We don't want to end up a, a frozen ghost ship that is encountered 13 years later. So how do we do that? How do we keep from just going through the motions? How do we make sure that there is life in our Christian walk? That there is a vibrancy? That there is a passion? And it's with that question in mind that we come to the first of the seven churches. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We'll be starting at verse 1 this morning. This is the first of seven, sometimes we call them letters. It's probably best, better to call them prophetic messages that Christ is giving to his church. Revelation chapter 2 verse 1. I like to read all seven verses and then we'll dig into it and see what God has what God wants from His church at Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for My namesake, And you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's open with prayer. Dear Lord God, our Father, as we come to your word, to your messages to these churches, as your message to the church universal, Lord, this morning may your Holy Spirit reveal your word and convict us with your word. Challenge us with your truth. Break us out of our apathy out of our set ways, 
and create a church that you want, Lord. We ask for your word to be spoken this morning, your word to go out mightily. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesus is the first church that we're, we're hearing from and we're hearing a message to. And, and as we go through the seven churches, we'll follow roughly the same format. We'll look at the church itself and then we'll look at various aspects that, that Christ uses as he, he t- says the same things about every church. He starts by giving a characteristic of himself that applies to that church and what he wants to say to that church. Then he gives a commendation to the church. Then he gives a criticism of the church with the exception of a couple that we'll see. And then he gives a command for what to do, how to overcome that. And then he gives a conqueror's reward. What happens if you conquer? And so over the next seven weeks, that's the format we'll use. We'll just follow the text and look at those things. and We'll explore what God wants for the church. We start in verse 1, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, right? And so it's helpful to take a moment and look at what the church in Ephesus was going through, what was going on there. And if you remember last week, we talked about the angel of the church. There's several options for interpretation there, but the best option seems to be that that is referencing the pastor of that church, the leader of that church. Because God is giving a message to that church for that church to become Christ-like. And so he writes to the church as a whole, to the group, what he intends. And he starts with Ephesus. And some things about Ephesus. Ephesus was a magnificent city. It was a great city. If you're going to start writing letters, why not start with one of the most prominent, one of the most incredible church cities in the region? Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the entire Roman Empire. Population was about 250,000 at this time. Just for comparison, I checked, and this year, population in Garden Grove is about 150,000. So picture 100,000 more people than Garden Grove. Okay, a little less than Anaheim if you live in Anaheim, but somewhere right in between. Now, to us, oh, oh, that's a normal city. But for them, cities were small. Some cities that we we visited in the, the land are the size of our property here. And so they're used to small cities. And if if someone was to travel and come across Ephesus, it would have been, wow, I have never seen so many people in my life. That was Ephesus. It was a a cultural center that, that brought in all kinds of arts, that brought in religion, that brought in architecture. It was a beautiful harbor. I think we have some pictures here. So Ephesus is right here. It's right on the harbor. At least it was at the time. Patmos is down here where John was writing from. And Ephesus is where John is from. He was pastoring at Ephesus right before he was taken into exile. So he starts with the city he came from. There's a beautiful harbor there where the the Castian River comes in. And so Ephesus became a major trade port to the west. And so people would come across, and and there was a a major road that would come all the way from Asia Minor, and they would all come down through Ephesus, and then from that port they could get goods and send goods to the west. So this was a major industrial center, um, a, a major transportation hub. Now, it's interesting, if you go to Ephesus today, it is not on the water. One of the things that happened over the last 2,000 years is the silt coming down the Castian River filled in the harbor. And Ephesus is now three to four miles from water. 
And, and if you look at the pictures of it, it's just this flat sort of level land just above sea level because the sediment kept coming in and it lost its place of prominence. But it was a beautiful city. There was a magnificent road from the harbor to the center of town. And again, roads back then are different from now. It's not that they just got the, the paving machine out and made a road. We're talking stone by stone. They made this road that went from the harbor to the heart of the city. This is a picture of part of Ephesus um, between A.D. 48 and A.D. 400. I know you're not going to be able to read the key here. That's okay. But over here we have the harbor, and so this is west. And then this was a road that they built to the center of town with this great stadium. This road is some 35 feet wide, which again at the time was unheard of. Stone on the sides of the roads, both here and they found them here and up in here, they found mosaics. And I think I have a picture of that where little bits of of stone and tile made designs all the way along what we would consider a sidewalk. These columns lined that and you had... Um, various shops and things in the columns. This was also a, a center of commerce. Just to give you a scope, this theater, and they had two theaters, by the way. They had a little theater, and this is their grand theater, seated about 24,000 people. Again, to us, we're like, okay, Angel Stadium, what's Angel Stadium? About 35, 30, 40. So a little bit smaller than Angel Stadium. But in AD 100 or 95, when this was written, this was incredible. See if I have some other pictures. This is a picture of the great theater today. Um, And you can get a a sense. This is that road that I was describing and what's left of that road. Another picture of the great theater with the road and what used to be the harbor. (laughs) Now the harbor's up here. So you get a sense of what has happened to the region. Another picture of Arcadian Way, the road. And at first it's like, well, that's not that big. And then I realized the size of the people. Wow, that's that's really big. And it's lined with these marble columns all the way up and down it. Do you get a sense of the opulence of the city and what kind of cultural center it was? This was the small theater. These would be up to the right of that first map and town hall, another um, agora, which was a a commerce center. Um, We have a library that um, was built over here. So this is a picture of one of the side streets and the mosaic sidewalk. I don't know if you can tell, these are all little bits of stone. So that's that's not a small job. This is one of the libraries that they built. This library was built about 10 years after Revelation was written. So roughly the time frame. At the time, it was a a two-story library that had all kinds of parchment and scrolls, not books like we think of. There was no computer there. But it was a library, so this was a cultural center of the time. Um, Back to this picture. Not only was Ephesus a great city, a magnificent city, it was a, a chief city, a center of economic, political, and religious activity. It was also a center of pagan worship. If you look up on the hill there, this was a grand temple to Artemis, or the Romans um, said Diana. And this temple up here was 425 feet long. It's huge. To get a sense, it was 220 feet wide with 60 foot high columns. The peak of our ceiling here is somewhere close to 30 feet, double this high just in the columns. 
back in the time of Christ. And so this city, Ephesus, was the center of worship to Artemis and, and the, the entire region. It was said that the Ephesians were more devoted to Artemis than anywhere else in the world. Artemis was the virgin goddess of the moon, the hunt. The story that was told with her is that she begged her father Zeus to allow her to remain unmarried and roam the, 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 roam nature at night. And so she would be with the animals and she would be with the trees and they considered her the, the god that would protect hunters. I don't really quite get it because if she's roaming with nature and is, is sort of like mother nature and she's protecting hunters who are trying to kill nature, but that, that's a whole different conversation. Artemis was the patron goddess of Ephesus. Worship of Artemis, as you can imagine, much like most of the cultic worship of the time, was all about the, the feelings, all about the sensuous. And so there were temple prostitution that was practiced with thousands of priestesses. Not just hundreds, but thousands. It was a big city. There were mutilation rituals, because again, you could feel with mutilation As well as the, the temple to Artemis, somewhere over in this region was a, a temple to Domitian. Remember the, the emperor? And they practiced emperor worship. And they had a number of other temples. But Artemis was clearly the, the largest. I don't know if you remember in Acts 19, when Paul had come into Ephesus. And he came and was preaching. And people started turning to Christ away from Artemis. Right? Do you remember what happened? Demetrius comes and he, he gets all of the trade people of Ephesus together and, and they're going to get rid of Paul. Because as people turn away from Artemis, they stop buying the household gods. They stop buying the things. And so Ephesus was a trade center. Also, much of their economic prosperity dealt with pagan worship. And, and it's great to read sometime in Acts 19 because you see just how committed they were. And, and they say, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And, and Demetrius is trying to say, we have to protect our God. Which again, what kind of God is it if it takes them to protect them? And, and, and that's what someone points out in the passage. That's the city that John is writing to. So it was a great city, a magnificent city. It was a city that was a center for pagan worship. But Ephesus also had a rich church history. And this is, this is very interesting to understand their history and then the criticism that Christ levels against them. The church at Ephesus was founded by Paul. In fact, Paul ministered there. It was his base for three years, just about 43 years before Revelation. And, and so Paul discipled there. He founded it. He ministered there on his third missionary journey. Paul then later, about 30 years before Revelation, assigned Timothy to be the pastor there. So this church has Paul as a pastor. One of their next pastors, after a little bit of a break, was Timothy. And then most recently, the Apostle John was their pastor. Probably until he was exiled. In fact, he was buried there. Or they, they feel he was buried there in St. John's Basilica. I think I missed a few pictures. This is a, um, the begin, entrance to the Temple of Domitian. Um, this is St. John's Basilica, where they, they believe St. John, or the Apostle John, was buried. A couple pictures there. So that's some information about Ephesus. When John went into exile, um, early church tradition 
thinks that Onesimus possibly took over. Ignatius, one of the early church fathers, um, wrote that Onesimus took over for John. And so basically, Christ is starting his performance review with the church of the region, with one of the largest cities, with the church that has the richest tradition, that has the richest heritage. Imagine if we had that series of pastors. Wouldn't that be great to listen to Paul preach? Then to listen to Timothy? Maybe hear a little bit from the Apostle John who walked with Christ? I can only imagine what that would be like. And so Christ comes and He talks to this church. This is the church at Ephesus. And He always starts with one of His characteristics out of chapter 1, which is why we started with chapter 1 last week, and a description of Christ. Each of those elements of the description, He's going to bring to bear on the church that He's writing to as it applies to that church. And so we read on in verse 1, Revelation 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him, and that's, that's a way of starting a prophecy in the Old Testament that often started the words of Yahweh, the words of God to his people. So there's divine authority here. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And if you remember, we talked about that last week, and we talked about the imagery, and, and the two words that are key there are holds and walks. Holds and walks. He holds the seven stars, which represents the seven pastors, in his right hand. And again with Revelation, there's so much imagery that is happening, and we we try to unpack that imagery. And we don't know for sure, but through other scripture and other writings, we have a really good idea of what these things mean. And in his right hand, he holds the seven stars, which stood for the seven leaders of the churches, the seven pastors of the churches. And, And to hold something in your hand was a sign of authority that you had control over it. And so this is a reference to the authority and the sovereignty of God over his church. Like we talked about last week, this is his church, not our church. This is God's church, not my church. He has final authority over it, and so what he wants from his church trumps anything I could ever want for the church. The second one there was he was walking among the seven lampstands, walking among his churches. And these are both present participles, which means it's an ongoing action. He's holding and continues to hold in his hand. He's walking and continues to walk. And the idea of walking among the seven lampstands is that you're able to inspect them. You're able to see everything. That Christ sees all that is going in his church. He is the authority over it. And he is coming to say what's doing well and what's not going well. So that's his description to the church at Ephesus a church that probably felt like they had it all together, like they were a mature church. As you you heard from the description, yeah, if I had Paul and Timothy and John and Onesimus, yeah, we'd have it all together. And so what happens when you have it all together is you can start to think of yourself more highly than you ought and start to forget that this is God's church and start thinking this is the church we built. And so right from the characteristic of Christ, it's a reminder that Christ is Lord over His church. So that's the characteristic of Christ. Then we move to the commendation. What does Christ want to commend about the church? And it's significant. We can learn so much by the fact that Christ always starts with a commendation. 
in our dealings with people, wouldn't that be a great way to start anything we say is with some sort of commendation and some sort of um, compliment of, of what we see them doing well. And that's how Christ here speaks to His church. And in verses 2 and 3, He starts by, I know your works. I know your works. And He's going to start every one of the seven churches that way. I know. And it's a reference to Him walking through and that He sees and He knows all things. I know your works. And he's going to begin to describe a diligent and hard-working congregation, a congregation that is knowledgeable with a love for moral purity and a love for doctrine. If I had to summarize the Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, it would be solid and grounded. Solid and grounded. And he mentions four different things in his commendation of the church. The first is diligent, hard work. Diligent hard work. In verse 2 there, I know your works, your toil. And I know your works is a general description of everything that he's going to talk about that follows, all the things they've done. But your toil was a word that was used of working until you were exhausted. Working until you were exhausted. This is holy sweat is what this is. Now I know some of you work out, right? Some of you run, a lot of you run. And some of you um, do stairs and other things as you prepare for Whitney. Is there a point where you just feel so exhausted that you can't go any further? Yeah, that's part of training, right? You get to that point. The commendation to the church at Ephesus is you have toiled, you have worked to exhaustion, and you have kept going. And you have kept working. And he's speaking to the church here, and so he's speaking of them doing God's work in the church. This was a diligent, conscientious, involved church. They weren't lazy. You didn't have people on the sidelines watching while one person did all the work. Man, this was a church that was sacrificing to serve God. Probably taking care of needs in the church. Taking care of the widows. Caring for the sick. Feeding the hungry. Participating in teaching ministry. Doing what it took for the church to be the church. And Christ commends them for that. The second commendation, not condemnation. The second commendation as we read on in verse 2, your toil and your patient endurance. And then jump to verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So we have a church here that is patiently enduring. Patient endurance. Through severe trials, through living in a town, you're living in a town where commerce would have been difficult if you said you were a Christian, where social life would have been difficult if you said you were a Christian because it was all about Artemis. And they bore up. They continued to do God's work even in hardship for His name's sake. So they worked hard. They patiently endured. The third commendation is they did not tolerate false teaching. They did not tolerate false teaching. This was a church that had solid, discerning doctrine. They studied God's Word, they obeyed God's Word, and they knew when someone was teaching falsehood. Second half of verse 2. I know your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. You cannot tolerate, you cannot put up with those that are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. See, apostles, when we think apostles, we think the twelve, capital A apostles. 
But there were many apostles in the church at the time, lower A apostles, because apostle meant someone that was sent out with authority. And so these were people that were sent out with authority by the church, usually to plant new churches. Throughout the New Testament, we have a number of examples of apostles, people that were called apostles outside of the twelve. And so people were coming to the church at Ephesus and claiming to be apostles, claiming to have authority, but teaching things that were not in accordance with God's word. Probably for the money, because a traveling apostle would get support and would get financial support. But the church at Ephesus knew. And they followed 1 John 4, 1-3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so they tested and they knew their doctrine. And they would not allow it to infiltrate their church. We saw Timothy in 1 Timothy instructing um, or Paul's instruction to Timothy while he was pastoring at Ephesus probably was to teach sound doctrine, teach against false doctrine. The church followed through. They followed through. In fact, we know that they kept following through for some time after Revelation. Ignatius, one of the early church fathers, wrote, You all live according to truth, and no heresy has a home among you. Indeed, you do not so much as listen to anyone if they speak of anything except concerning Jesus Christ in truth. They had a reputation for standing for truth. They worked hard. They patiently endured. They did not endure false teaching. And finally, they could not stand immorality and sin. They could not stand immorality and sin. They hated sin. If you jump to verse 6, which Christ comes back and gives them one more commendation after a scathing review, He said, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. You don't hate the Nicolaitans, you hate their works, the sin. We don't know completely what the Nicolaitans stood for, but it looks as if they were teaching some sort of of combination of being able to still worship um, Artemis and and hold on to some of those pagan practices while still being a Christian. Which, man, that would be a huge temptation in Ephesus, wouldn't it? If that's how you had to do business. And so there was an immorality that came with this. A sense that we should get to do what we want. Participation in the cult is okay. We should eat meat sacrificed to idols. It's okay to have sex outside of marriage and with the temple prostitutes. And Christ says, you hate their works. And He commends them for that. So what do you think of the church so far? This is a church I'd like to go to. This is a superstar church. I think of those pastors. I think of their stand for, for proper doctrine. I think of the service. And so this was a hard-working church that served God and knew God's Word and stood for it. And so, man, if there was any church that I would think out of Revelation should have no criticism, this would be it. But we have verse 4. And we see some of the most scathing and damaging criticism. Verse 4, But, but I have this against you. And it was all going so well until this verse. I can imagine them hearing it from Onesimus, reading it to them, and they're saying, yeah, that's us, that's us, that's us. And then the words of Christ say, But I have this against you. And it's just a simple phrase. 
but so powerful. And this is the criticism in your notes. You have abandoned the love you had at first. They had abandoned their first love. They were so involved in the fight. They were so involved in the details of ministry. They forgot their first love. They forgot that a love for Christ trumps all else. And yes, Christ wants our service. He wants us to know doctrine. He wants us to stand for truth. But more importantly, He wants us to love Him above all else. And in fact, those things without a love for God, without a first love for God, are empty and shallow. And I have struggled with that this week. I have struggled in my study. Those are good things. How can we have have a, a, a condemnation like this? Especially when we look at the warning in verse 5. And we'll jump there and then we'll come back to it. Remember therefore where you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. But the warning, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. It's only one of two churches that God says, I will destroy your church. I will take it off the face of the earth. Because you've abandoned your first love. And I look at that, I'm like, really, is it that important that you would take a church off the face of the earth simply because their heart wasn't right? They were doing all the right things. That's how important it is. That's how important it is. What is the first love that he's talking about? They would have got it right away. This is a devotion to Christ that often characterizes a new believer. Do you you remember what it was like when you first accepted Christ? What was it like? Give, Give me some feedback. Someone that's a brand new Christian. Tell me about them. Excited. Why are they excited? It's brand new. And they are no longer going to hell. They have been saved by the blood of Christ. The weight of sin is off their shoulders. It has been paid for. Man, that's exciting. What else do you see new believers doing? They want to be in God's Word. Word. I've I've talked with new believers. Oh, you should read God's Word. Okay. Well, why don't you start with James or Mark or, or John or some of those? And they come back a week later and said, I read it. Oh, great. What'd you think? No, I read the whole thing. I couldn't put it down. Read it cover to cover. There are some good things in there, Pastor Ron. Yeah, it's God's Word. And I'm envious of that excitement sometimes. That passion for God. That devotion to God. And John here is bringing them back and saying, do you remember what it was like to love God at first? To make your devotion for God the most important thing in your life. To be fervent, uninhibited, excited, to openly display your Christianity. I love talking with new believers because they can't stop talking about God. Everyone knows they're Christians. I remember Joanne sharing about her mom and she accepted Christ recently. She's telling everyone. She has the nerve to tell people she doesn't know. Oh, we could learn from her. We could learn from that excitement, from that devotion. When nothing else matters but Christ. 
See, they would have understood first love or most important love. They would have immediately gone back to the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, where it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And talks about integrating that into every part of life. When you sit, when you rise, when you're walking. Jesus quoted that in Mark 12, 29. When, when asked what the most important command was, Jesus answered, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. If Jesus says it's the most important thing we can do, the most important command, perhaps it's important. And we minimize it. I believe for all kinds of reasons. I think culture has done a a magnificent job of redefining love to be this feminine, ooey-gooey thing. Sorry, ladies. The, The emotion side of love is important. It's there. But love is also very masculine. Love says, I will die for my family. And I will die for my family in a moment. Why do I get emotional about that? Because it's love for my family. And it's a love that gives all, that sacrifices all. That's the love that God desires from his church. I was talking to Alicia this week at the table, breakfast table. We're talking about marriage and love. And I said, you know, I love mommy more than anyone else here on earth. And Alicia says, not more than God, daddy. Said, no, sweetie, not more than God. See, without that first love, obedience is sterile and shallow. We can know so much and think we are such deep Christians, and without a love and devotion to God, we aren't deep, we are shallow and empty. And I'm not discounting the things Christ commends. He commends them because He wants that from His church. But He wants more. He wants us to answer the question, what is most important in our life with Christ? What do we spend our thoughts on with Christ? What do we spend our energy on with Christ? key is labor is no substitute for love. Labor is no substitute for love. The maintenance of success, the desire to do the right things can become more important than the motivation for the service. Love for Christ. And when that happens, the heart is wrong. And the the one who walks through the candlestick sees that and says, no, not in my church. For the church at Ephesus, years of vigilance and correct doctrine dulled a correct heart. But a healthy church has both. A healthy church has both. How did this happen? We weren't there, but you can only imagine. And, and, and I think it, it's, it's so valuable to look at our marriages and our human relationships. How does love grow cold? How, do, how does the devotion and the, the energy and the passion behind that disappear? It doesn't happen overnight. It's, it slowly creeps in. We see that with Lot 
in the Bible. We see that with Samson in the Bible. We see that with David, with Bathsheba, a series of, of ever-increasing compromises led to that walking away. Time and familiarity can lead to a loss of love. We get used to God. It doesn't surprise us anymore because it's God. He's supposed to do that. Sometimes success can breed apathy. We can coast. Abraham Lincoln said, Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. And core to the issue is pride. See, if a devotion and a love for God is not priority in my life, is not the most important thing in my life, then logically that means something else is. And something else has become my God instead of God Almighty. And I think in a stable, solid church, the danger is pride is what replaces a love for God. And I say that because I've fought that. I've seen that in my life. I remember sitting at the first day of Talbot, a banquet for families, and I remember the speaker going up and saying, half of you will not survive seminary. Your marriages will not survive. Your faith will not survive. Great, let's go. But he was talking about that success can breed apathy, that study can breed pride and can steal our devotion to God. We can be too busy, just like in a marriage, busyness can kill love. We can, we can be busy with so many things and kill our walk with God. You know, one of the troubling words in verse 4 is that word abandoned. They had abandoned their first love. I would much rather say they had lost their first love. Right? Think about it. If I lose something, I don't have the same responsibility for it. It's not on me. I lost it. I lose things all the time. But if I say I abandoned it, or some of your versions say you left it, there is a a responsibility that comes with that. We did it. And that's the word Christ uses for a dry time for abandoning our first love. And again, that bugs me. Because it forces me to say, this is on me. This is on on me. The church at Ephesus was the church with everything except the greatest thing. And Christ condemns that. Then we come to verse 5, a command and a warning. What do we do? What do we do if our hearts are dry, if our faith has grown cold, our love has grown cold? And he gives three things. First is remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember what it was like to love God, to be passionate for God, to be devoted to God, to be consumed by a desire for God. Remember that childlike faith and trust. Remember that He died on the cross. 
Remember His grace. Remember His mercy. And don't take that lightly. It's why we studied the attributes of God. Because we come to who God is and we're like, and He still showed grace and He still died on the cross for my sins. And that should breed awe in us until the day we die and beyond. Could we ever get tired of that kind of infinite love and grace and mercy and satisfaction of justice? But we have to remember what it was like to be consumed by God. And the idea of that is is that we're remembering and saying that is the ideal. That is the goal. That is what we're striving for. In Acts 2, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul. That's the first love that we're talking about. But then the next one, first R is remember. The second R is to repent. To repent. And this is where we, we come. That This is tied to the word abandoned. Repent is used again at the end of this verse. Repent is the idea of turning around from an undesired behavior toward a desired behavior. But it has the idea of, of confession and forgiveness. And when we read the word repent the conclusion that we must come to by God's Word is that to be dry in our love, to be empty of our devotion, is sin. And again, I've struggled with that this week. Because I want to make it lighter than that. But when my first passion is not Christ, when the reason I do things here is out of duty instead of love for God, Christ calls that sin. Now, it doesn't mean we stop doing things, and, and it would be great to have some time to explore it. It doesn't mean we stop serving. It means we start serving out of the right reasons, and we address the motives, and we address the heart. But until we come to a point of having the mind of Christ, that this is a sin issue, something we need to seek forgiveness from, we won't solve it. And we will continue to drift in our faith and in our Christianity. So we need to remember the goal, but then we need to repent and say, God, I am dry. I feel like I'm just doing this out of habit. I'm just coming here week to week, and I don't know why anymore. God, forgive me. Forgive me and reignite the flame in my heart. Reignite the passion. Until we come with that kind of honesty, our pride will keep us from seeing it. The church at Ephesus was deep in some ways and shallow in others, and their pride kept them from seeing where they were shallow. So Christ says, remember, repent, and then repeat the first things. Repeat the first things. What they did when they first came to Christ. Remember what it was like to be a new Christian, and go do it. Spend time in the Word. Spend time in prayer. Because by those actions, with confession, with repentance, God's mercy and His blessing will bring the love and the devotion. Something I often say is, we can't feel ourselves into a new way of acting, but we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling. 
That's a little bit of this principle. Start doing it. Repeat the first things. But with prayer and with the goal of having a heart for Christ. Take risks for God. Be excited about God. Tell someone you're a Christian this week and see what happens. And then we mentioned the end of verse 5. Or else removed. Had to get a fourth R in there. Or else removed. And Christ says, if your heart isn't right, you can do all the right things and it still isn't pleasing to me. And I think this goes back to the church as a candlestick. A church as, as a, a way to lift up the light of Christ. Because if we are doing all the right things without the right heart, then we become critical, we become dour. We, it, it, it's, it's not the light of Christ. And we actually are presenting a different light. And Christ will not let His glory be defamed. And He says, live for me for the right reasons. Or else I'll have to remove you. That is staggering. That is staggering. Finally, verse 7, the conqueror's promise. And we'll see this formula at the end of every one of the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear. Basically, pay attention. Listen to what I'm saying. What the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, and he says that at the beginning of each one, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The one that conquers, we know from 1 John 5, 4 and 5, everyone who is born of God overcomes or conquers the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so this is a promise to all believers. This is a promise to those that have put Christ first and made Christ center to their heart. You will eat from the tree of life which we know isn't in the Garden of Eden anymore. It's in paradise with Christ. You will be with me forever in perfect communion. What a great thing to look forward to. The man who wrote Come Thou Fount penned incredible words about walking with God, about coming back to His grace, about His grace capturing us. But soon after he wrote that and it was published, he drifted away from God in his personal life. And he he found a faith that was hollow, that didn't have the fire, the passion for God, and he began to question everything about it. And it bugged him. He had written this magnificent hymn. And he went traveling to try to deal with this. And in a moment of, of, of traveling to Europe, he's talking to this lady, and the lady doesn't know who he is. And this lady says, you know, I've got to share with you one of my favorite hymns. It's It's called, Come Thou Fount. She said, and especially this verse where it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And talks about His grace bringing us back. She goes, that has helped me so much. And the author just started weeping. Just started weeping. And he said, I had forgotten that grace. I had forgotten that love. I had forgotten how amazing it is. And he remembered, and he repented, and he came back to a relationship with Christ, matching the deeds. Lord God, our Father, remind us of first things, of the most important things, devotion and love to you. 
that is based on your love for us. We love because you first loved us. We love each other because you love us. And Lord, right now, I pray that you would search our hearts and convict our hearts, Lord. That if we have been so concerned about doing that we've forgotten about being, Lord, I pray that we would confess it right now. Just take a moment and ask God to restore first love, to reignite the flame to challenge us with why we are here, with why we follow God. And remember that grace, that excitement for God, that passion for God. Lord God, may we be a church that works hard that diligently follows doctrine and truth, but because we love you beyond all else. May we be the church you want. In Jesus' name, amen.